Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Picture a man going on a journey. It's a long journey down a dark and twisted road. A road filled with potholes, plot holes, and head scratching moments of bewilderment and confusion. Soon, the questions begin. Who is that guy? Is he the hero? Why does he appear to be wearing a wig? Why does he have a speech impediment? And why is he pulling that face? That can't be his normal expression, can it? Slowly, the dread realization dawns. He is the hero. That is a wig. He thinks he's doing an accent and yes, that is just his face. Follow us then into a world of darkness and terror that segues inexorably into a world of boredom and ridicule. Follow us into the shadows, beyond the bottom of the bargain bin, to the screening after the midnight show. Welcome to a place we call the Bad Movie Zone. Uh, Leo, is it okay if I turn the lights back on now and I want my torch back? Uh, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you can't just celebrate what's good, can you? Sometimes you have to turn your attention to things that really aren't that good at all. Uh, welcome to Revenge of the 80s Kids. <laughs> something of a different, something of a different show for yeah, us. Speaking of not very good, at, not very good at all. Welcome to Revenge of the 80s Kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we know where we are. We know where we sit. Yeah, a man can be judged by the quality of his enemies, and our enemy is Big Bay, so, you know. Indeed. Uh, we're very lucky not to be mutant turtles. So there we go, and uh, of course joining me tonight is Ian, uh, who's now put the lights back on uh, in the bunker, so that's good. Uh, and also Justin, hello Justin. Yes. hello. Uh, today I am adopting the persona of Justin Candescent with Range. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I wish it, it's a bit, uh, uh, you've suddenly gone all Treehouse of Horror. I wish that we'd uh, all thought of uh, the same thing, but we didn't. And Justin doesn't like to share his gags before, so he can spring us on them as a surprise. Talking of springing things on people as a surprise, the decade 2000-2009 sprung one particularly nasty surprise upon us, and it is notable that uh, the winner of the Razzie for worst film of the decade, uh, in that decade, was... Battlefield Earth, which was released in the year 2000. So we, we not only had a worst film of the decade, but it existed for the entire 10-year period. We had uh, ample time to revel in its glorious badness, and therefore it becomes a template of bad movies, or it becomes a sort of a reference point, something like a, a sort of an Benchmark. exemplar. Yes, exactly. A Plato's bad film, from which all other bad films derive. 
so we, we can approach our first question uh, confident in the knowledge we have a reference to go to. Uh, and I should ask you, gentlemen, what is it that makes Battlefield Earth bad? Uh, you know, is, is it the worst film of the decade? It's a bad movie of this. There is no disputing. Uh, but is there a, a slight element of, of, of Glier Schadenfreude for taking down John Travolta a little peg? Because he's part of that weird religion that we'd feel a bit unsettled about. And, uh, it's always nice when hubris undoes someone. And this is definitely a vanity project for John Travolta. It's bad, but is it, is it, seriously guys, is it the worst? I think I, I, the things that get me angry are when it, you have a, a disproportionate amount of money thrown at something, and the disproportionate element is the fact that, um, you know, things like story editing, acting, is the bit that's the, the, the smallest significance, the, the smallest trace. And that's where it's like Battlefield Earth, is a terrible, terrible, terrible crime against cinema for that. You're like the Inquisitor from Red Dwarf. You want to go around and, like, erase bad films from history and give them the, yes. the money that should have gone for that to somebody else to see if they could do yes. something with it. You know, save children or something. Just do something else with your money rather than do that because no one gains any benefit from it. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't say that. There are actual societies of people who find bad movies to watch, and they have profited mm. immensely yes. from the existence of Battlefield Earth. Yes, it's, as I said, you know, cornerstone if, of if, that. If, if it wasn't for bad, mo- bad movies like Battlefield Earth, lots of internet viewers, and I think a good example of this would be the Nostalgia Critic, simply wouldn't have a job. You know, he doesn't work. He makes uh, reviews of movies bad movies probably makes fun of them and, and points out the wrong then then you know explains what they could have done as they go and you know there's there's a whole cottage industry of people who gain advertising through putting up these videos in that he just just would not exist and so you know well, much good I, has I, come I, from this you yes. could say i like to think of this as this this is just us trying to deal with this trauma that we've gone through and putting a positive spin on it. Well, well, let's let's put the patient on the table. Or, well, not patient, the corpse on the table, and begin our autopsy. I haven't actually seen Battlefield Earth, but I have seen other people review Battlefield Earth, and so therefore I feel like I can lie that I have an opinion about it at parties or podcasts, for instance. Well, I had the I had the general misfortune to be watching this with with Leo recently. So, Leo, maybe you should kick this off with a. The ineptitude, the, the ineptitude of Battlefield Earth comes in at multiple levels. Uh, the first danger sign that anyone would have easily identified, and indeed it kept this, this project from the screen for, for many, many years, is that uh, the story upon which it is based, the novel by L. Ron Hubbard, is terrible. I mean, it's a really terrible story. Um, even Hollywood movie producers could look at a treatment of the basic plot of it and go, no, that's stupid. And that's what it is. I mean, I'm, I've got no doubt that there were meetings of various uh, Hubbard enthusiasts trying to get a project together. And they said, well, could we change this to that? And they would be like, no, nope, because it is the word of our Messiah. And therefore, it cannot be changed. And the producer went, all right, we won't make it then. Cheers. Bye. So, yeah, that's the first thing is that it's just such a bad story that even a Hollywood producer can see straight off the bat. It's going to be rubbish. And, and bearing in mind some of the fact that gets past their filters, that's a really bad start. 
Then, of course, you've got the thing of, uh, if you've got a vanity project, stars are, film stars, particularly at the level of John Travolta, uh, in the year 2000, are not known for having reined in egos. You know, that you, there's something about it that just messes with it. So, you know, there's going to be egos everywhere. And in addition, um, it has ingredients. There are certain things that if they appear in a film, you know the film stands a better than even chance of being terrible. Uh, one of those things, uh, for some reason, is Forrest Whitaker. In films where the film is good, he adds a little something. In films where the film is terrible, he can actually detract from it. If we can take a sideways step for a minute to Species... It's got that famous moment in it when Forrest Whitaker playing an empath, without a doubt, the most rubbish of all the psychics, walks into a room that is basically decorated with blood and internal organs and utters the deathless line, something bad happened here. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was your first clue? Um, Councillor Troy's most promising student. <laughs> so yeah and and that's it Forrest Whitaker does not yeah. Forrest Whitaker takes the money delivers the line and it's almost like he takes it seriously enough that he can highlight it's like if he was walking through it like sleepwalking through it actually he probably is but Forrest Whitaker's an able enough actor that even if he sleepwalks through it it's pretty good but when you give a good delivery or a decent delivery to a bad line. It just really brings out the badness. So, of basically, that line. what you say at Forrest Whitaker, what he brings to the script, he, he's like, he's like a highlight texter. He just goes through and highlights these lines. And if they're good lines, they stand out and shine. And if they're bad, they're bold on the page. Yes, it's something he shares in common with uh, actors like Ben Kingsley. When Ben Kingsley turns up for the paycheck, he does exactly the same thing. It should be noted that Species has not just Whitaker, but also Kingsley. And so, therefore, it gets amplified. I mean, Species has to be somewhere on the list of all-time most terrible movies, but I'm sure we haven't even got there. Oh, and in fact... Uh, now that I come to think about it, we have a trifecta in Species because Alfred Molina does exactly the same thing again, and he's there too. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, Species might not have been so toe-curlingly terrible if it hadn't been for the fact that they've got all these people coming in for a paycheck and they all take it terribly seriously and it just highlights how inept and terrible that film is. But back to Battlefield Earth. I mean, because at least Species is only about some supermodel alien who goes round rapaciously eating beefcake uh, and spreading internal organs all over the... The, the walls and stuff like that. You know, it's a B-movie. It's such a B-movie yeah. through and through. Battlefield Earth is a B-movie. I mean, it is. The, the oh, plot yeah, is B-movie level. But the problem with it is it has a lot, a, a big bucket of pretension going along with its B-movie roots. If it reveled in the fact it was a story about mankind getting bombed back to the Stone Age by aliens, turned into slaves, and then those slaves becoming like a fighting force that not only defeats the aliens, blows up their home world in a rather unlikely chain of events that, you know, just doesn't really make any sense. If it reveled in that status as being a little bit of schlock nonsense, then I, it might even have got away with it. But it's the fact that it kind of has this thing of trying to teach us stuff about human nature and about how wicked aliens are. And, you know, it, it has some pretension to 
dialogue and character that, you know, has, he tries to have character moments. And it's like someone who doesn't have any hands or feet stumbling around trying to switch the lights on and make a cup of tea. All you end up with is like scorch marks and water on the floor steaming gently and, and pain and if, regret. If I may do a quick pass, and maybe you gentlemen have yes. actually seen the damn thing can opine in. Uh, for me, one of the big stumbling blocks is the aliens themselves. It would be far easier if they just made them space orcs. Because that would kind of yeah. make sense about how dumb these aliens actually are when you get down to it. They've just got enough technology to bomb us, and, and the, the, the advantage is purely technological. But no, they're also posed as kind of this alternate society. Mac- political machinations are interesting, but these ones in this film aren't. Game of Thrones is all about political machinations between bad guys. But in this one, we, we have some sort of bureaucracy thing going on that's quite dull. The aliens themselves don't make sense. They've invaded the Earth. And for some reason, they seem to regard humans as little more than rats. And they're constantly surprised by the fact that, oh, these humans appear to communicate. Oh, they appear to have emotions. Oh, they appear to be working together. They know full well we had a civilization before we came here. They're, they're gloating about the fact they bombed it down to bits in nine minutes or seven minutes, however long it took. Uh, so <clears> that <throat> seems really bizarre that they're, they're completely taken aback by, oh, they have a capacity for learning and a culture. It's like even the most rudimentary idiot of anthropology, even the most racist idiot can see culture is there. Uh, so this is, and also, was this a joke? There's a line about they thought dogs were in charge because they saw the dogs were taking humans for walks. Is that a genuine line in the film, or was that just a joke put in by one of the reviewers that I watched? Uh, I think there might have been a line about something to do with that. I, that is a joke. At that point, you have broken reality. The fact that they teach these, what they consider as animals, how to fly all their ships and their language is like, and then therefore allows them to come up with this preposterous plan, is utterly ridiculous. I get really annoyed about this, but it's plot holes. Oh, my God. This film makes no bloody sense at all. Like, in seven or eight, nine minutes, they wiped out the human race, and yet in two weeks, a, a group of Neanderthals managed to learn how to fly fighter pilot planes and blow not only the aliens up, but their world up. This is stupid. Yes, it is a bit of a science fiction trope that the bad guy's planet has some weakness that allows the some entire planet to be destroyed. Like, oh, if, you, if, if, if something explodes in the atmosphere, that's it. The yes. entire planet is dead. One, one has to say, that was an what? accident waiting to happen sooner or later anyway, human rebellion or not. Abandoned planet. I don't. It, it was because they mined it or something. Gold, wasn't it? Right? All this the world destruction, they're interested in gold. That's it. Well, they need it's, it for the mobile phones, I presumably, or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's like it's not as, it's not like a hard metal to come like, by. You know what? It's like a really bad uh, role-playing game where you know the 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 games master he's just pulling stuff out of his out of his ass as he goes along without any real thought or logic to anything. It's just you sit. I just I sat there just kind of screaming and ranting when I was because there were just you know there was like scenes in it where they're like what. This defies all credibility. Like the, the, the main, the human guy, he's got a gun on John Travolta. You know, here is his chance to overthrow this guy and he gives it back to him. I mean, it's just, it's just yeah, insulting. And then, then John Travolta starts killing people again. I think that there's a, a special thing here, which is that there are many films that don't make sense that are in dumb as a bag of rocks. But then there's not many films that are, are like that 
It continually gives John Travolta opportunities to do a little back and forth with someone, could be one of the humans, it could be another alien or whatever, in which he seems to broker a deal with them, they accept the terms, he turns around and stabs them in the back, and then crows on about how clever he is. Now, it's all supposed to go towards this point where you understand that really he isn't that clever in the first place, but... It's kind of like they do it like five times in the whole movie or whatever it is. And it's just tedious because it's it's all pretty amateurish anyway. And it's quite obvious what's going to happen. And it's so laboured. And that's the thing. It's like, I mean, it's a little bit... It's a little bit like if someone came round to your house that you didn't know very well and you went out of the room to get them a drink. You came back into your living room and they'd done a poo on the floor. And they were like, look at what I've done. Look at how clever it is. That's fantastic. Don't you see? The character is so pleased with how awesome he is. Like that scene where he, he intimidates the humans by showing how quickly he can dispatch cows by shooting yeah. and jumping around with his gun. And it looks awful. It's all, it's a, as I said, my point, it's kind of insulting because clearly this thing is expensive looking, you know, and there are visual effects and there is, you know, sets and everything else. Um, and when you fundamentally, you know, I don't, I know, I know there's always a certain amount of dumbing down in, in big blockbuster films, but I don't imagine many people would have just kind of taken all of that shit and eaten it up and just gone like, yep, I'm fine with all this. And clearly they didn't because, you know, it's evidently bombed honestly uh although i totally think it deserves the title of best uh, sorry best worst movie worst movie of the entire decade yes i think it definitely deserves that title i can't i can't think of anything that so thoroughly satisfies the criteria in every way i mean this is why it survived at the top of the list for 10 years as the worst movie i mean it, it is in a sort of academic sense comfortably and safely the worst movie of that decade but the thing about it is that's not personal i personally i find it dull and pretentious and uh overlong and clunk-headed and clumsy and all of these things but i don't i don't actually hate it I mean, I, or, or indeed, I mean, this is the other thing, and I suppose this is where we should divert her for a moment. I didn't understand the phrase, or didn't really get, or thought that I just wasn't the type of person to go for a movie that is, quote unquote, so bad it's good, for many, many years. And then one day I had the pleasure of seeing uh, a film called Ninja Terminator, <laughs> uh, from the mid 80s, uh, coming out of Hong Kong. It is, simultaneously one of the very worst and yet at the same time one of the very best movies i have ever seen and i'm a proud owner of a copy of this movie Uh, again you cannot uh, deny that it's a terrible movie but unlike battlefield earth the, the way in which it has been made badly elevates it to a new high of of just entertainment you cannot come away from the film and not have been entertained 
as far as I understand it, I believe it was footage from another film with new footage filmed and added to it. Oh, well, the, the idea is the Hong Kong domestic market, uh, they would like a bit of chop socky, so they'd just make them a movie and that would be all fine and well. But then if you want to sell it to the West, the conventional wisdom of the time went, you can't sell it to the West properly unless you have someone white in it. But of course, you didn't want to mix them up because when you were making a domestic product, everybody spoke in Mandarin or Cantonese and they just, you know, and then you, you, you couldn't have English people coming to that because you couldn't expect them to learn Mandarin or Cantonese. Uh, just to be in a film and and really in order to get the most out of the product what you do is you film a separate kind of bunch of footage and then you make so when you dub it over you make some kind of hypothetical link between the two movies but then you'll notice that there are certain groups of characters that never ever meet the idea with this one was that an actor called uh richard harrison who if you've not seen him just think uh sort of uh ian botham <laughs> a little bit crossed with uh, maybe uh, Doug McClure. Yeah, that, that would probably do it. I mean, he has a, you know a big moustache going on there. Uh, the moustache is very prominent in the acting of Richard Harrison. It is actually a vital part of every character that he plays. And uh, the other thing that's vitally prominent is that there's two Richard Harrisons. There's Richard Harrison with his sweet tash and his blonde locks uh, doing his normal everyday thing in a bunch of uh, cheap 80s catalogue clothes. And then there is Ninja Richard Harrison. Now, the thing about a ninja is that they cover their nose and their, their mouth with a with a sort of cowl handkerchief type thing. That means the tash can no longer come into play. What a dilemma. Richard Harrison decides to solve this by applying liberal amounts of mascara. So the mask he does some good mascara acting when he's in his camouflaged ninja outfit. Yeah, I was gonna say the the, the, the camo ninja outfit to make him stand out from everybody else. But well they they had some curtains so, you know, they have to You're looking at the curtains? I couldn't focus on the curtains. I was distracted by the fact he answers things on a Garfield phone. Yes, yes. You see, Richard oh, Harrison, I... as the head of, or one of the heads of the Ninja Empire, has to have a Ninja phone. Why the Ninja phone is a novelty Garfield phone, I'm not sure. Maybe Phil, he just hates money. Honestly, I don't think I've laughed so hard when I was, ever, I think, watching this film. You've got, you've got ninjas who, who, uh, it is from that one, isn't it? That they say ninja ninja, or they seem to shuffle. Now, well, we added that sound effect, but they shuffle around in a kind of Benny Hill fashion at high speed. Yes, you've got they the do. you've got the hilarious robot of Doom that is the, a toy robot that is sent with this Doom laden voice that the bad guy sends out to the ninja. You've got the hilarious method of crossing the bed in a ninja style, which is very important if you're a ninja. It's scene after scene of absolutely ridiculous but hilarity. It is awesome, this film. This is just just amazing. That attack robot was part of the new footage that was filmed, which is clearly just done in someone's house. But it's the actual film. The film itself, I mean, presumably there was a plot point about about the the villain's identity. Uh, But it makes makes no sense in this version. Because when there's a final showdown, the villain's wearing this blonde wig, and at the end he whips off the blonde wig, and I'm goes, huh? It was a wig? 
It's a plot point of no relevance whatsoever in Ninja Terminator. I don't know what the significance of it was. Presumably, it was I, not d- I don't doesn't... know. I think that the idea was because obviously James Bond was big back then. That the main villain who wears a white suit and white golf gloves, or actually it was no, his black driving gloves or something. It was really weird costume anyway. And he's wearing this like blonde wig, and we're not talking like a long flowing blonde wig. It's like a a very uh, a sculpted blonde bob. Yeah, like really shiny, kind of like a helmet of blonde hair. And everybody's all the way through there. Oh, it's that Chinese. And he's Chinese. Just as the, So it's like, oh, it's the Chinese man with blonde hair. We should be scared now. And they're all like, oh, it's so strange that he has blonde hair. Because obviously Bond villains, they have something about them, like big scars or whatever. And they couldn't run to a big scar or metal teeth or a bowler hat with razor blades on the inside or any of those things. So they went down and they were walking around and someone saw the wig in a hairdresser went oh that'll do yeah brilliant uh, and we're supposed to assume that he has blonde hair because of some kind of well at first you think because of the ineptitude of the rest of the film that he's just <laughs> got blonde hair because it's like some kind of industrial accident or something oh I turned his hair completely blonde and like a helmet and you know as if it's come out of a hairdresser I, I just thought I just thought trying to make the, the main as distinctive as possible so stick on the white suit and stick on the blonde hair so he stands out which means that at the moment right at the end where the main uh, Chinese hero from the Chinese footage, faces this blonde, bewigged villain, and they get ready to do the final rumble. When the guy reaches up to the the fringe of his hair and whips the wig off, you're like, I mean, they could have possibly dubbed it, ah, you think this is what I look like, but no, the blonde wig it's just a wig! (laughs) Oh my god, and everyone's like, wow, it's a wig! Like, as if I mean, it would be great if it had devolved into a scene where it goes, dude, I don't know if you know this, but we all knew it was a wig. You know? yes. <laughs> You're totally Chinese, and that like that's like platinum blonde. That's like some Swedish shit you've got going on there, you know? Like, we really... What, you guys... But I, I always thought you thought this was my real head. No, man, we, we knew it was a wig. You yeah. knew? Why didn't someone tell me, you idiot? The thing is, the joy of this film is exactly what you've just mentioned there. You put it on... And then you just talk over the top of it, inserting that dialogue. And that is certain films are made for it. This film is absolutely made for it. It's just like you will, will not sit there and just watch it on your own. You you have to embellish it with with the right. And but it work. I mean, the thing about it is, it works on so many different levels because you go all the way from just on the surface ridiculous. Like when they told the ninjas, well, the way that you walk is that you keep your thighs absolutely still, <laughs> bend your body at sort of a 20 degree angle, and then just move your lower legs really far. Uh, what We might look a little as if we just really, really are looking for a toilet with some urgency. Yeah, yeah, that's how ninjas walk, is it? Okay, fair enough. Um, there's that. Um, I mean, that's just on the surface. That's just, you see it, it's a yes. quick slap in the face gag. Then you've got stuff like the wig, which is just bizarre, where it yeah. goes through these bizarre loops and levels of really they thought this, <laughs> or you know, um, and, and you know, and the moments like the moment that um, our, our ninja friend in the western side, Richard Harrison, uh, uses his uh, ninja throwing knives to dispatch an escaped crab in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, it's just like, as really, ninjas at home, they've got they've got every use possible. Well, yeah, no melon is safe because how does a ninja check how to slice his melons in half? Well, you know, forget forget ninjas and pirates, ninjas and crustaceans. 
followed by a yeah. salad. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you've got all of these different things. And then, then it even manages to do a little bit of toilet humour in the fact that you have a big showdown at the end in the western half where the, the ninjas uh, show down against one another. And there's two uh, ninjas, Richard Harrison and his buddy. Um, it's weird. In the dub, it sounds like the three guardians of the ninja empire's most excellent mystic, Gugor, the statue of the golden ninja warrior, are called Harry, Barry, and Tomashi. And I'm, and I think Richard Harris is playing either Harry or Barry, and then Tomashi gets killed at the beginning. And, and then, so it's Harry and Barry the ninjas. I mean, I feel like I'm making this up, but I'm really not. This is actually what Harry... don't, don't forget as well, the link, the, 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 uh, the cameraman who falls asleep halfway through. Oh yeah, there, there is, there is this fundamental level as well at which the, the people who were doing the film they weren't really that bothered they were like our oh, people who paid to see any of this box so yeah sometimes they'd like hit the like someone would knock the camera so probably i think so that when you were supposed to have someone centered in the shot the shot slowly wandered like a lazy eye over to one side and the scene sticks to the left or right of the frame and people are continuing to do it and then they went oh we seem to have knocked the camera during recording that scene we haven't got any money to shoot it again all right well we'll just cut it in like that then it's weird so harry and barry the ninja anyway back to that bit are fighting the two main villains of that part of plotline and they have a big dust up and one of the the one that isn't richard harrison anyway he dies so harry or barry whichever one is not richard harrison he dies and then in revenge richard harrison kills the other one and then obviously they've been going through the scene and filming it and they go hang on nobody killed the other guy he's still there somewhere Ah, oh, how are we going to deal with this? Oh, I've got it, I've got it. Okay, Richard, just stay there in close-up, just over on the left-hand side of the screen, yeah. Okay, now, villain guy, you're in the background. Just stand up, stand up there. Now, Richard, close your eyes. Hold your, food, uh, your, your face very still. Ninja guy, move out of the way. Someone set a smoke charge, and then we'll cut it together. And basically, at the end, it looks like Richard Harrison kills the last remaining ninja with a ninja fart. Because he kind of closes his eyes and looks a bit like, oh, and then the guy just goes, poof, in a puff of green smoke. And you're like, whoa, okay. Yeah, there isn't a decision in this movie that isn't somehow bizarre. They're all ill-informed, but at the same time, they're a weird kind of genius yes. throughout the movie. I that, agree. It, it's definitely a bad movie, but is it is it a bad movie in the sense that you're not entertained by it? Absolutely not. Well, no. It is, I mean. There's other factors as well. I mean, by and large, I do give it a big pass because it is it is just cheap nonsense at the end of the day. Aspiring to terrible but entertaining is is a plus point for it. It's, it's a legend now because of it. Things like Battlefield Earth, like yes. Justin said, there was money and potential and, and supposedly talent, lots and lots of a full crew of talented people. You can't be angry at Ninja Terminator. No. Oh, no. You can't be. You just take it and laugh and, laugh and run with it. It is like when you first get your camcorder and you go off and make a film with your friends when you're 14 years old. It's that simply upscaled to an adult level. That, that's, well, that's all it is at the end of the day. I would, I would say that. I mean, you know, this, you've brought up the fact that this is, you know, we should know bad movies because we made some. 
And I think what elevates Ninja Terminator is not just the fact that it's bad, because, you know, you can make an inept movie and people can watch it and fall asleep because they're bored. I think what makes what elevates Ninja Terminator is that the, the, the bad decisions that were made happen at this bizarre frequency of how could you have made a decision that bad? The, the, the shot setup calls for the ninja to search the bedroom. Why did you have to make the man playing the ninja approach the bed like like half crouched down and then shoulder roll across the bottom of the bed like he's Starsky and Hutch sliding across the bottom of a car and then land on his knees next to the bedroom cabinet and pull open a drawer to appear inside? I mean, well, how did you direct something that badly? Maybe he just like filmed his, his child doing that. That's the kind of thing you do, isn't it? When you're like, let's play ninjas, everyone, when you're like seven. That, that, that is a complete thing. So we've got this sort of frequency here. We've got Battlefield Earth, expensive, dull, bad. You can laugh at it. I think you have to bring your own jokes to a certain extent. And then the other end, Ninja Terminator, cost bobbins, and has plenty of visual entertainment baked within it. That kind of you, you, to a certain extent, you can have a giggle at it, even if you don't bring your own jokes, but it does suggest things that you might like to laugh about, uh, yourself in the peanut gallery. So that you, we've got a kind of a spectrum going on there. And, and the things that make me angry are actually neither of those things. When I don't like a bad movie, I tend to really not like movies that overall are bad but have moments of potential where it's like, this could have been so good. And you've just demonstrated as well, director, cast, writers, whoever, that you know what a good movie looks like. Because that scene there, that 30 seconds, two minutes, whatever it is, that was really good. It's just the rest of it that's bobbins. And now I'm angry. Because if you've just done that two minutes over and over again, not just that two minutes, but you know, worked at that level for the whole movie. It would have been a good movie. Uh, this is why one of my least favourite films of all time is Equilibrium, because it has some really nice moments in it, and then it's just let down by the other 75% of the movie. It does make no sense, and I think this is maybe just more of a problem for us gentlemen, if I may be elitist for a moment, because we are the brainy guys. They call it fridge logic, don't they? It's, it all kind of goes into your brain. You nod and walk away. Then you go to the fridge, you open it and go, hang on a moment. There's a kind of dialogue flourish. When, the spoilers, everyone, when Christian Bale kills Sean Bean, Sean Bean's like, you know, we, uh, we have peace, but a terrible price, but I pay it gladly because now he's in pain because he has emotions. And at the end, the hero, when he dispatches the final villain, you know, he says, you know, you, you know, the villain's going, you can't kill me. I, I have emotions. I'm a real person. I'm not just an emotionless person. And says, I, I pay that price gladly and shoots him. It makes no sense when you think about it, though. You know what I mean? It just like it doesn't quite sit right. Why should the fact that the, that the chief villain does not take the emotional suppressants in any way stop Christian Bale killing him whatsoever? Christian Bale has no point kind of gone on record of, of going, no, I believe that humanity is important and real feeling people should not be heard. No, no, it's all about the fact that he's being oppressed. And this is the guy oppressing him, and he needs to die because then everyone's free. It's like the the lamest reason for the hero not to shoot the main villain I, I have ever seen in a movie. Well, I have to say, I think that you've probably come at it at a deeper level even than I. I'm really good at taking my brain off the hook and just not thinking about it. Is that right, audience? Yes, it is. <clears throat> I saw recently I, Frankenstein. One of the things that I think people on the internet are frequently 
outraged uh, vocally about the success of the site WatchMojo.com and their lists of shoddily researched half-baked top tens. But what they don't realize, I think, is that one of the reasons why this site is so successful is because people watch the list in order to disagree with it. And if the list was always thoroughly researched and unarguable with, they may not exist in their current form due to the fact that everybody would be like, yeah, they always do good lists. I'll watch one when I feel in the mood. Whereas sometimes you watch a Watch Mojo list. Express, I feel like being angry about something pointlessly for a bit. Let's watch this Watch Mojo list and see how badly they've got it wrong. So they did a list of the worst films of 2014. And I, Frankenstein, was quite high on the list, like number four or number three. And I was there like, oh, come on, you're not taking this on the level in which it is intended. You are trying to hold it to an, a level of accountability it simply didn't aspire to. I watched that movie. It makes no damn sense. It has gargoyles versus demons hunted by Frankenstein's monster and Bill Nye's there carving off a big slice of ham as the villain. And how can you possibly expect it to be anything other than kind of a ridiculous bit of B-movie schlock? And I could totally switch my brain off for that. Why I couldn't switch my brain off in equilibrium is because at some level they'd fundamentally under underestimated the capacity. And many people have had this problem when they say emotions are illegal. I mean, for God's sake, when Will Smith, I mean, you know, you could say what you like about After Earth, another terrible movie. But when he committed to play a man who showed no emotion, he's a good enough actor and performer that he actually damn well did it. It made it very boring and tedious to watch, but he totally did it. But when you're watching a movie where nobody's supposed to have any emotion and they get mildly irritated, you go, oh, shoot him. They just renders the whole anything they're trying to do seriously ridiculous. Kurt Wimmer also made Ultraviolet, another movie that many people think is terrible. And it does have a problem in that the most exciting stuff happens at the beginning and it slowly devolves into like soupy, not very action worthy. But I could I could deal with that because there isn't just some fundamental thing that just prodded at me all the way through the movie going, you're irritated by this. This is stupid. Stop watching it which is exactly what happened in Equilibrium. Yeah. I think I think also the fact that, and this is a minor quibble compared to its many sins, Christian Bale is nigh and unstoppable. Uh, the, the showdown of the film has him going into a long, glorious golden corridor filled with stormtroopers with their leather jackets and motorcycle helmets and machine guns, and he kills about 20 of them. And then he enters the bad guy's office, and from behind pillars emerges another set of, you know, elite bodyguards, which he then immediately dispatches in the moments. Then the other uh, Galaban Brotherhood guy, who is like his evil opposite number, gets up and goes to fight him. And Christian Bell immediately dispatches him. And after a while, it's like there's there's no tension here. Christian Bale is not under threat. He's just got tissue paper people he has to cut through before the final showdown with a guy he wins against in, in, very quickly. When I watched it, I just went, oh, my God, this film so wants to be the Matrix and also a bit of kind of George Orwell thrown in. It did seem like a bit of a mess, actually. Visually, it kind of annoyed me. I tell you what annoyed me as well, that I just didn't like, even though it sounds like quite a cool idea, I didn't like the kind of gun carter thing. It, I don't know, something about that felt wrong to me. It just didn't quite marry with the rest of the world and... I just the whole thing I thought 
was messy. It's because it's a it's a very dynamic. Uh, I mean, it looks very choreographed how they did it in the film. But it, at the same time, it doesn't seem to match with people who are emotionless. It's not how the emotionless Superman would go about things somehow. I think humans, like actors portraying people without emotions, is a really stupid thing to put in a film. Because, you know, you go and see films because you want to be entertained. And part of that comes from people's performances. You can have, you can have like, minions in masks, and they can be robots and robotic, or, you know, just like unnamed individuals but if you have the people that you're meant to be following in this case obviously he doesn't and they do in fact have emotions and that's what you mentioned but it just seems like a really stupid idea because why would you want why is that in, yes. it's not going to be interesting if it's done well and if it's not done well like this then you then question it it just seems a very bad idea all round. There's, there's one point when what they should have done it should have been like 1984 in the sense that the low yeah, there's a middle there's a class that is oppressed and made emotionless but the yes. upper class are, are not and they are the elite yes. That would have made sense. I mean, there's one scene where the opposite number brother, the, back, the chief bad guy, uh, the rival to Christian Bale, sucker punches Christian Bale and drags him in to the high command. And he's screaming and shouting about, the rot at the core of our glorious empire has been exposed. You're emoting. Stop that. Yeah. It, yeah. So it, it breaks some Banning emotions just seems like a stupid thing to do because, sure, banning negative emotions, that would be useful. But banning positive emotions? Why? Yes. Why would anyone do it? Oh, I, mean, I think that the I think that the the rot at the core of that uh, society is exposed in the fact that the most perfect expression of its central thesis was not captured till many years later when uh, a popular paint brand in the UK decided to make an advert in which everybody lived in grey little depressing there and then someone painted a wall with their paint and it was a lovely colourful thing and then everybody did it and then the sun yeah. came out and all the colour made everybody joyful and happy and you're like so basically equilibrium is like a martial arts fueled hour and a half long 1984 referencing version of that paint advert it's not yes. the other way around. Just because the paint advert came second, what you're essentially doing, because there is this whole thing about emotional kind of uh, resistance, hiding bits of painting and sitting in front of it going, oh, isn't it nice? Like that. And I go, that's horrible, subversive, society-destroying behaviour, you sitting there taking part in an art appreciation card. You should be ashamed. And it's just like, really? Really, yeah. is this what you're asking me to buy into? It, it, for me, there's two levels of bad, and that's just one of them. And I think it's frequently the films that actually get to me and make me actually quite angry about them are the ones where, in the execution of the idea or the writing or the concept, the very simplest to do in the sense of the actual mechanics of it. I'm not saying that writing is easy, but the act of writing, the act of writing a notepad file or sitting and having a think, it's very low cost. Yeah, having a think and writing something in notepad. These things are not budget breakers. And when you've just failed to do that, it's like, well, why should I care about all the other cool stuff that you've done and all the stuff that because you've taken this one central thing uh, that it's not that hard to do and failed to do it properly. So, you know, it just kind of speaks to the rest of your work, really. That's one level. And then there's just rubbish. There's just bad. Uh, you know, your battlefield and stuff. That's the other type of bad. The thing that makes me angry, I having look, looked at this list I drew up, and I think the ones that make me the most angry, the thing, the, the, the things that take something you like, 
and they obliterate that. It's sometimes in the nature of uh, sequels or prequels. I'm not going to particularly go on the rant of things I've talked about before. Or it's sometimes reboots or some or genres and things. But there are pivotal examples of this that have just... They, they destroy the thing and it takes a long time to get over that. I mean, one of those things I remember from my childhood watching was Highlander 2. Oh, that was on my list too. Come up. Yes. It was bound to come up. Because you take something. I rather enjoyed Highlander, to be honest. That was good, bloody good fun. And then, oh, there's a sequel. So, you know, my mate had that on DVD and we eagerly went around there and watched it. And like, what? Is this shit? It just effectively pisses like the most monumentally, like, monumental destruction of the original film by effectively retconning it. It's a bit, it's basically like midichlorians, that film. That's what it is. It's like, take something that's all kind of mystical and magical and going, oh, it's aliens. Uh, oh, and this character can go back to life. And um, now it's about... The, and you're like, what? 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 Hang on, wait, wait. I'm trying to get the reference of... So these characters are... They're the same characters, but now now we're we're in the space? What? You know... It makes no sense. It, you're, you're right. It does piss all over the previous film. But it, even if you just take the film in and of itself, it's a film about aliens that get exiled to Earth, build a giant machine for humanity, it gets abused by humanity, and then the original aliens who they got exiled by turn up to try and kill them off. If you just accept it on those terms, it still makes no sense. General Katana yeah. hates MacLeod. So MacLeod is now, at the state the start of the movie, he's an old guy, He's dying. His lover's life died in a car crash years ago. His life is full of regrets. The earth has turned to crap because of his interference. He's miserable and he's mortal. That is McLeod. Right? General Katana should be turning on his TV monitor, looking at McLeod and laughing his ass off because that is revenge right there. Instead, what he does, he goes, I'm going to have to kill him. For some reason, him, he's been there for 500 years, and now all of a sudden I've decided I'm going to have to kill him. So I'm going to send more aliens to Earth, even though this makes him immortal again. It makes no sense. And General Katana, who presumably has some kind of army, hence General, you know, when his first two assassins fail, he goes, oh, the hell, I'll go myself. I'm not going to bring an, an, an armada with me. No, I'll just go down on my Todd. I'm sure a one-on-one showdown will in no way backfire on me at the end of the film. And, and, and then yeah. just, yeah, and on top of all that, Yes, what is Sean Connery doing here, other than, you know, being Sean Connery? Picking up a paycheck. Yeah, everyone was picking up a paycheck. He's defining the phone-it-in in this, isn't he, really? He's just there. I, I remember reading a review of Highlander 2 in which it, it, he said the, the reviewer was like, so they're Kel under this fan and, like, Amazing Grace starts to play on the bagpipes and Sean Connery's there. And for me, Sean Connery's performance is summed up in the moment that uh, Christopher Lambert looks back at him and says, will I ever see you again? And uh, he says, maybe, which should have had a subtitle. It says, you must be joking! Uh, as he just disappears <laughs> in a puff of bagpipes. 
music like, no way, Jose, yes. never again. Scottish music is playing despite the fact I was I was supposedly born in Egypt and uh, I'm, I have a Spanish name. And the only thing Scottish about him is his accent, by the way. There's no reason for bagpipes to be playing <laughs> whatsoever in context of the film. It's like Bagpipe music might as well might have been playing in Hunt for Red October, you know? Uh, but, but yeah, so I mean, you know, we've, we've been through sort of all the different types. There's just plain bad. There's things that annoy you. There's things that, yeah, I mean, that is a particular type of bad movie. I mean, this is why The Phantom Menace ticks a lot of boxes because it is a bad movie and it also takes something that people loved and pisses all over it. So, you know, it cuts two of the big Thing. No, no, again, I, I stick by my statement that Attack of the Clones is worse. Attack of the Clones, you watch it again, you find a new reason to hate it anew. That's how bad um, it is. So there we go. Well, yeah, okay, so the prequel trilogy as a whole, not the most stellar of successes. I mean, it's, the fact is, you know, it, it, it can be smelled so far away that now, you know, you've got Disney have bought Star Wars, J.J. Abrams, who brought, breathed new life into Star Trek and has done many other things that are laudable, if not always entirely successful, has been brought on to, to bring Star Wars back to the big screen. And there has been a teaser trailer and people have liked it. But there's still this quiet thing of, I'm bricking it. People are going to be sitting in the new The Force Awakens, or whatever it's called. They're just going to be like, in those few seconds when the the sort of classification thing or the, the logo of the cinema comes up, before the actual beginning of the Star Wars overture, they're all going to be clenching their buttocks. You know, people are going to be holding hands in rows. Please don't be bad. Please don't be bad. Please don't be bad. No, I'm sitting there going... Just, just aim for adequacy. If adequacy will be good. If you get adequacy, anything else is a bonus. Yeah, but that's, but well, that's it. I mean, steer clear of cesspool of stinking cinematic filth. That's all people want out of it, and and they're afraid they're not going to get it because of the prequel trilogy. I mean, Disney also own Marvel, who make Marvel Studios, so Disney effectively owns Marvel Studios. Everyone loves that stuff, but they're still not confident that they're going to be able to make turn Star films, Wars Leo, You know. They also made, what, the pirate films? Yes. Well, there's nothing wrong with any except the last of the pirate films. It's just you can't watch them all mushed up together at once. It's a good thing that you mentioned that, because the last thing I think we really need to address is when people say movies are bad, when they're not actually bad, for some reason they attract the attention of people who are not the intended audience as the subject of ridicule and, and anger and vitriol. I mean, the two the two main things that I think of here are, again, Underworld and Resident Evil, where the, you hear a lot of people bad-mouthing it, and then occasionally a happy fan spats up, says, well, I don't mind them, I like them, I've seen them all, I'm going to see more. And that's it. And then they leave, because they don't want to get involved in the, the, yeah. the rest of it. Or my, sister, my sister is hanging out for the final Resident Evil film. She, she can't wait for it. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, yeah. 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 I would have a hard job classing them as a bad film. No, no, no. They are what they are, and if you like them, you like them or not. But they're, they're not. They're very competently made films. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like a police. Weekend. It's like a police academy. If if what's the point of being outraged about Police Academy Seven? If you're still following the series by this point, you deserve everything you get. It's the same Resident Evil. You didn't like the first few. That, why that, why that, you that's still? That's rather hard from Resident Evil because Resident Evil does have no, no, some kind I, of artistic yes, merit. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm just, I'm just are, saying that. They are good films in that respect. By this stage, they're they're not, res, they're, 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 they're Resident Evil films. No one go in there and say, I've been tricked into seeing a terrible film by this stage. Yeah. So that's what I was kind of getting at. 
Yeah. That's why I, I, I watched the first Transformers movie. I've seen no others, even though I'm a huge Transformers fan. Because quite frankly, if I go see another Michael Bay Transformers film, I'm a fool if it's, if I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to re- go back to movies that kind of get a bad rep, and I think the key text for me in this is Aliens versus Predator 2 Requiem. I mean, you know, I've know people who just can't help going back to that movie to kick it again and again and again. I'm like, but are we having some kind of sense of what you're asking for, failure? Because in a sense, it is a kind of a fan service film, but weirdly not for fans. That's, I think that's where it comes down to. It's for all the people who watch Alien and Predator who aren't actual fans of the franchise and go into comics and video games. They just like to watch those movies. And what AVP2 does is it satisfies a number of requests from the casual Alien Predator fan that the real hardcore fan is outraged they should even consider it. The end of Alien Resurrection is like, oh, and then they get to Earth. And from the beginning of, like, the aliens, the question that was asked is, so were the aliens coming to Earth? They always wanted xenomorphs on Earth. People, there was a general hubbub of people who'd watched the movie, liked it, but weren't going to get all nerdy about it, who were like, yeah, that'd be really cool. Imagine a movie where the aliens were on Earth. That'd be, that'd be sick, man. It'd be amazing. Like that, yeah? And so Aliens vs. Predator 2, delivers and it not only delivers it kind of makes a joke out of schlocky genre horror movies like they've looked around at all the things like final destination and you know all the rip-offs of 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 japanese horror movies and all this stuff and they keep doing things that subvert that genre it's actually pretty clever never gets any credit for it I mean, this guy spends the whole movie trying to rescue some dumb blonde he's had a crush on since they were, like, seven years old in kindergarten, or however that works in America, you know, American education system, whatever happens, yeah? And they finally look in as if they might get together, and wouldn't you know, Alien and Predator come to town, making their relationship somewhat difficult. And so they try to escape the town together, and they get right towards the thing where it's like, the helicopter is on the roof, all we have to do is get up Three floors of this hospital, get in the helicopter, we're fine and dandy. Two seconds later, big slicey predator blade cuts the girlfriend in half. I was wetting myself with laughter. Most other people are like, well, it was pretty cool, but, you know, it's just dumb CG effects. It's like, no, it, I mean, yes, it's a CG effect, and yes, you've got, you've got this bugbear about CG. But can you not see the genius of walking this terribly tired genre relationship where he's the kid who has to deliver pizzas and she's got a rich boyfriend and then they get together and he proves himself to be a hero and we're assuming that they're going to have a bit of a smooch at the end no gets cut in half by a blade sorry mate aliens versus well came to town. it's time to tell the audience there are a bunch of c words for trying to invest in their characters <laughs> well, no, but no, but the point is, the point is they deliberately created characters you couldn't invest in. And yet people hammer it because oh, I can't invest in the characters. You're not supposed to invest in the characters. They're supposed to be terrible so that you don't, you actually have a bit of a chuckle whenever one of them, because this is a film called, right? Alien versus Predator. Where does it say with humans who were the, I mean, the point is it actually takes, the rise out of this idea of having like something where humans are the stars of the show. They've made a film where humans are the stars of the show. And then they've got, yeah, 
but this is Aliens versus Predator. So all those things that would happen if this was like Leprechaun 8, they're not going to happen because this is Alien versus Predators. These are badasses. There's all this stuff in it, and they keep hammering that gong. Like, if this was any other movie, then you would expect this to happen. But because it's Alien versus Predator, this happens instead. And yet, I, don't, I mean, I'm the only person who ever seems... And well, that, uh, me and other people who are like, oh, yeah, I really like that movie. I've met a lot of people, again, like Resident Evil, like, oh, yeah, I really love that movie. I love that movie so much. You can always put it on. It's, all, it's always entertaining. And for people who get the jokes, and that's the thing. I think what I always get from people who hate that movie is that they don't get the jokes. Uh, that's a weird thing. You know, it's not really a bad movie. It's just that you're actually, despite being an intelligent person... Not able to understand all the jokes in this movie. Well, you know, when you tell this... a joke and no one in the room laughs, it's it's a bad moment for everybody. No, no, no. It's, 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 that's the thing. I'm Because I've met so many people that like that movie, but it's like we've always... Well, like I've always discovered is that happy fans don't make any noise. They don't argue with people who don't like it. They go, oh, you don't like that? No, oh, it sucks to be you. I love it. And off they go. It's only fans. I mean, that's the thing. That's why um, so many flame wars got started over the Star Wars prequels because there were people who were desperate to like it yes. who would come and apologise for I d- it. Leo, I don't rant about Alien vs Predator. I'm, I'm just like, mm. you oh, know, yeah, AVP's fine. dead. Mm. Oh, well, there we go. Uh, the whole thing is a wasted opportunity now for awesomeness. Oh well. I, I don't would rant you... or rage or go, this is the death of the franchise. No, the, the franchise had, had had problems for a while. The franchise has had problems since Aliens. You know, Alien 3, it's, it's, a start, it's a slippery slope all the way down to Alien vs. Predator Requiem. And maybe so, that's another aspect to it then. I really don't understand what opportunity for awesomeness there was. I don't know. Comic books seem, seem to be popular. I don't know. It's not yeah, something I'm really analyzing. I watched it and I was like, yeah. oh, well, I think I prefer no, from, the first one, all things considered. But, from, mm. from what I understand, yeah, from what I understand of it, though, I think that the comic book storyline would be a little bit expensive to, oh, and as well as which they made that as a comic arc. So really it's more of a television series idea as opposed to a, it, 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 yeah, I mean, I think that the comics are a whole separate thing. Alien versus Predator computer games, uh, the first one, obviously on the PC, that was really good. And there was also one, not Collodion, Marines before anyone jumps in here that was kind of like a rehash of the original AVP that was made for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox that nobody bought and I ended up getting for like 199 from somewhere it's pretty decent actually I don't understand in fact many people who reviewed it said yeah it's pretty good actually I don't know why everyone hates it if I wanted to have a rant about an alien film I've got more to complain about with Alien 3 or Alien Resurrection uh, the first AV Alien vs Predator film has a lot of objections to it as well so it's it's so far down my chart of problems I have with the Alien franchise that you know it's like there's an the, assault course of crap to get to this film for me to I get. I think the Alien, fra- the Alien franchise has a problem in that they, they, you know, in the first film, they created this kind of perfect killing machine. A lot of design went into it, a lot of thought, all these kind of horrific kind of Im- Im- images they purposely built into it to make this thing terrifying, the kind of rape monster kind of monstrosity that it is. And then the second one, they obviously went, well, what's more terrifying? Well, a queen... And, you know, the idea of lots of them and lots of eggs and, you know, and then, but then where do you go after that? This thing is designed to be like perfect killing machine. And any, anything more than that is just, uh, writers trying to make some new spin on it that's, that usually isn't very successful. 
Okay, okay. So, Ian, is there a movie that you have much love for, like that many other people think is bad, that you think... Because I actually think that AVP2 is actually a pretty clever movie. It's kind of a satirical, almost, on on a lot of different genre tropes. And so, therefore, I actually think the re- the exact reverse of it's a bad movie. It's actually quite a clever movie. Is there a movie like that for you, where most people would kick something and you'd be like, no, there's actually a good... It's actually good. It's not even just meh. It's good. And you just don't understand it. You've put me on the spot there, and it, I can't find one easily to hand. I, I, I have uh, one. If you really can't think of one, but I have one. I'm going to say John Carter. God damn it. Uh, well, yeah, but the problem with that is, I, I totally uh, am with you there. I remember us going to see John Carter, and I'm going, that was pretty good. I liked it. I mean, it, it had some things in it that we have seen before, but that's because yeah. the things we've seen before ripped it off. But then over time, everyone's come round to our way of thinking. So let's stop talking about films that are quite decent because I feel that's definitely off topic for today. No, if- it's, well, yeah, but it's the thing of, but everybody thinks they're bad. So, you know, that's, that's the, and it's like, well, I understand why you think it's bad, but you're wrong. <laughs> is, is kind of where I'm coming from on that. If I may uh, kick us into a different arena, if I may. Yes. Let's cover some superhero movies. Well, at least one I want to talk about in passing in right. a certain respect. Now, when you say bad superhero movies, my goodness, we have we have a, a, a buffet to choose from. <laughs> and I suppose, I think we've given Batman Robin a sufficient kicking in 97. I think we gave How the Duck a sufficient kicking when we covered that as well. I think it was, it was in 886. So really, I want to zero in today on Catwoman. Oh, yes. Now, goodness me, where do I begin? Okay, well, the thing I want to focus in on here in the suck, because, you know, there's so much to choose from here. Casting Halle Berry isn't necessarily the worst decision you ever made. She has won an award for emoting to the audience. Sharon Stone as the main villain isn't necessarily the worst decision in the world. The problem, I think, with this film is, is the people who made it have no idea who Catwoman is. They might have seen the Adam West 1960s Batman. They might, they've probably seen the Tim Burton Batman. And from there, they've sort of sat down and gone, oh, geez, we have to expand this Catwoman character into a film franchise now. Oh, my goodness, how are we going to do that? No attempt has been made to source the source material of Catwoman, who was essentially an, an amoral, not an immoral, an amoral burglar, a thief. And seeing perhaps, you know, you just have to throw up against someone who brings out some sense of justice in her to take down as a villain or something like that. No, no, there's no Selina Kyle. It's a complete new mythology where the Catwoman is kind of like this magical thing that gets passed around and there's every generation has a Catwoman. Like there's a, like there's a Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort of thing. And the thing I really want to put the spotlight on here is, as in this is a structural problem is the fact that the script has credited with four writers. It doesn't have four writers. The script for Catwoman had 28 writers. I'm sorry, this is a problem. You, it would be ridiculous if your film chewed through 28 directors of photography or 28 editors or something, or 28 executive producers. The, the, the writer is such a weak and anemic position in Hollywood, it is a structural problem. You know, when Harlan Ellison and everyone was, back in the day, were fighting for their rights, what they focused in on as the most important thing was, well, for every draft you have to pay us, and you have to give us a credit. We want to get paid for our work because you have to pay a plumber, whether you like the color of the pipes or not. And we want a credit. We want recognition for what we did. They completely succeeded creative control. And Catwoman is the result of that decision. 
when you write something, there's this thing called, you know, Lee, you can probably talk about writing more than me, but there's like the process of discovery and, and fusing your ideas together. And even if you give a, even if you give a writer a shopping list of things you want to include in the story, a scriptwriter can string together in a coherent way and bring the characters together. When you have 28 writers, that simply says to me that new people had to add stuff as requirements were needed. There's no cohesiveness. There's no through line. There's no overall thought. There's just lots of people saying, I want this, I want that, fire that writer, I want my character to be more like this, please change it, please. 28 writers, seriously, if my script required 28 rewrites, I think it's time to dump it in the bin and start again from scratch. So on the, on the script, the weakness of the script writer in Hollywood, an essential person for creating, you know, the, 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 the blueprint of a story, the diminishment of that, Catwoman is a byproduct of that. Writers can make a movie great. And they can totally fail to polish a turd as well uh, and still do a serviceable job. And that's the thing. This tells you something about the attitude of Hollywood. When I think about it, a writer is one person. And uh, as uh, Tarantino noted, there are two types of writers. There's the writer who turns up on set every day. And there's the writer who... like writes it gives it to you and lets you just do what you want with it and you can't be in between you have to be one of those two because it just doesn't work otherwise and so given that model you'd say well bearing in mind the fact that if you want to make a product that's really great get a great writer get someone who's on board get you know sort it out why not do that it's actually one of the least difficult things to do in the process of making a movie it's quite you know you spend a you know a few more phone calls couple more lunch meetings the writer then is in sympathy and in harmony with what the story is and then they produce something and all of this stuff and then you've elevated your movie without actually spending any more money than you would have spent anyway on the writer why don't you do it and the answer is because we're not really interested in making the best movie that we can we just want to sell seats and for some reason it's quite an obvious cost to cut like hire a cheaper writer hit throw a stone hit the first writer you do say do you want to write this if they do pay them get the script job done no if they just had one cheap hack and this guy had never read a a, you know he'd just seen the tim burton movie and span his yarn from there that would be one thing it's 28 writers it's a case of Uh, fire that writer hire another writer fire give this guy a pass where you've gone where you've gone into that is the fact that uh because writers are like that because it's like you have lunch with them you say how do you feel about making this movie and making this in this in my vision my general vision into actual dialogue and stage directions, people get, like, favourites, or, alternatively, they just don't like writers at all, and they they entrust someone else to find me a writer, get me this. And then it comes this conference thing where it's like, if the producer is like, I'm handling the writer, uh, I've gone to my writer's agent or whatever it is and they've provided me the writer here's the script and then the actor has enough power they go i don't like the way my character's written get me another writer and the producer goes fair enough and they go back and again another place so you're talking about that's more of a political thing of where they keep chopping changing and new favorites are brought up or someone's pet writer is brought in and yeah the budget gets out of hand because uh, on the writing because people keep wheeling in new examples and this is the from the idea that from what i've just said as you know writers are cheap getting a rewrite is cheap you pay one guy he works for a couple of days and bish bash bosh 
you've got a new script or you've got bits of the script to be worked on a couple of meetings you know and then you know that what you've identified there is a process where that has got completely out of hand that little changes suddenly led on to there being 28 hands in that pot and it all went wrong but no i mean the basic idea where you have one writer is just as prone to go terribly oh yeah for sure it's it's just when the writer is so powerless as this there is no one who can speak up for the writer i mean it's a creative collaboration i accept that it's all about people pulling together and sometimes you know writers can be terribly wrong in which case it's, it's, it's directors and producers and exactly you know these people who make films who should have the sense to pull them in a direction they know will work better as a film it's just the fact that here it just seems to be kind of it, it was just ingredients thrown in unmixed up together and out comes an appalling cake yeah, well, what you've got there is a symptom. I mean, if that, they went through 28 writers, you don't need to go through 28 DPs to have the, the photography part, the, the cinematography department still be a shambles. Do you know what I mean? You don't need to. You don't need the same thing to go wrong in oh, every yes. department. For, for efficiency's sake, you can get a script this bad with just one writer. Twenty-eight was extreme extravagance. It's just the fact that there is there is no one pushing for a coherency of story. Obviously, a writer has a position of 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 seeing the blueprint as a whole, I suppose. And yes, he doesn't see everything. He doesn't necessarily see things with a camera's eye. The, the actors, clearly the actors are just all pulling from their own corner and saying, I want my character to do this, I want my character to do You promised me a character like this when we talk about the film, and this isn't reflected in the script. I want a rewrite, please, Mr. Director. Yes, ma'am. Right away, ma'am. You know, and it's, it's just like, clearly what you get at the end is this dis- distorted mess. But it's like, I think writing, a lot of them with, is, is with Hollywood these days, is the devaluation of the writer as a contributor to the creative process. He's not the only voice, but he should be a voice. I think that it comes from this fact of writers, and this is writers now, are not team players. Not that they're not or not capable of it, but they're just, generally speaking, you become a writer because you don't mind sitting on your own with a word processor for your only companion for long periods of time. Uh, Like I said, I mean, one of the most powerful writers in Hollywood is uh, the guy who wrote Blade and Blade 2 and Blade Trinity and also many Batman things. And I can't remember his name at the moment. Uh, It's it's temporarily escaped my notice. But uh, he's a terrible director. I've seen at least three films he's directed. In fact, he directed Blade Trinity. He's just massive writer and he's obviously a writer who's one of those guys who turns up every day and partakes in the filmmaking process and does rewrites of little bits of scenes and this and that and changes things you know at the time and that's his process and the reason that's probably the reason why he's so powerful in a way because he comes into the collaborative process and i think one of the things that writers have done to devalue themselves is when they actually arise well i can do my bit i don't even need to meet the actors i just you know know what the story is write it as a script and turn it in and then you go oh could you just do this and that and i do some rewrites and i never have to meet anyone else but the problem is you see that makes it seem like you think you're better than everyone else and i think that's what is it's all about is that writing should be seen as part of the soup and should be more dynamic. But the way that people have put themselves into, or writers have inserted themselves into the filmmaking process has been... I mean, this is why there's so much love for writer-directors, 
because then the writer and the director are the same person. And that means you've got a team player and one of those boffins who writes dialogue in one body. Hallelujah. Tarantino. Wonderful. No, I mean, yes, I am blaming writers as partly responsible because they, they, it, at the end of the day, what was important to them was a paycheck and a credit. And, and that, I think that they've come to regret that now. I mean, I'd, I have, I'd have followed writers talking about writing for Hollywood. And by and large, they're like, well, you know, you write your script and you get paid for it and off it goes. And yes, it gets mangled. So don't get too precious about it. That's just the way Hollywood is. If you, you know, if you want to have your story with integrity, go write your novel. And I, I kind of feel in some ways they just surrendered. And that's kind of a shame because Catwoman. Indeed. Um, well, and, and most films actually have some bits where you're like, oh, really? Could you not have just done one more pass? Really? Mm. Sorry. Some, and sometimes, to kind of move sideways on this uh, discussion, um, sometimes um, films are made um, and faithfully adapted from source material uh, of which they should, ne- they should never have bothered and I guess I'm going to class this as a bad film because I really despise this. But I imagine a lot of people liked it. And that is Twilight. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, now, this uh, this offence, not, not particularly in a kind of cinematic sense. You know, I don't look at it and go, what a bloody awfully edited, acted uh, film. There has, but I think it offends me on on a genre piece that thoroughly kind of pisses over any kind of uh, knowledge of that genre. It's clearly the writer of the original books had no real concept of what vampires were, and they were just there to make a love triangle and be a convenience for the story. So, you know, the film, I imagine, faithfully adapts that book and those series of books well. And the problem is, yes, um, if you go along seeing Twilight thinking it's a film about vampires, you are going to be very, very disappointed. I mean, I, I, I know, I guess it's a case that this film is not made for me, but still, take case, moving that from the, from, from the equation, it is a stupid film that, that uses a very, very incredibly potent, dangerous symbol, you know, popular culture, the vampire, and uses it in a way that shows no intelligence or thought whatsoever. You know, the vampires in this movie are portrayed as superhuman creatures that can that having amazing kind of um, speed and strength and no discernible weaknesses. There is no reason why we wouldn't, as humans, be just cattle for them. And we'd have a future uh, not unlike that science fiction uh, vampire film called. I've forgotten the top of it now. Yeah, no, um, I know what we're talking about. Sam yeah, Neill was in uh, There's no reason why they would keep us around at all. Why are they lurking in, in right, kind of cloudy parts of the world? Because, oh, my God, someone might see they go a bit spangly. Oh, God, no. What what are we going to do against these immortal, um, superhuman, strong uh, monsters now that we know they go spangly? Well, you know, nothing, because they wipe us all out. It's just... And I... not only that... The conceit of the film has to rely on having one of these as a central character. And therefore, these, these vampires, they're not vampires, they are vampires, but despite all of these gifts that, you know, nature has given them, the fact that they are the natural predator, they choose, for some unknown reason, to be essentially vegans. And that's they will a, not a, on this. That's the Cullen family in particular, I think, are the vegetarian vampires. Yeah. That's they have chosen to do this. Well, because they think it's a bit bad. Right? That's basically it, right? They just think, oh, it's kind of a bit wrong. 
But these are this. It's like saying it's like a tiger basically going. Actually, I don't think I'll eat you, small vulnerable creature, because essentially I'm, I've got a moral problem with that. It doesn't make any sense, right? That's what they are. They're creatures. I mean, it's all right for a set. It's all right for maybe one character to challenge this and deal with that and deal with the ramifications, and then you know because they've fallen in love and with a mortal and they they are struggling. But the family, no, the family's fine with it. We don't do that. It's like I, what? I think in many ways the the Maya Pyres, as they are known, are right. only like the level one. Uh, area of complaint. If people who actually seriously break down these f- uh, films or the books in particular uh, for critical analysis tend to hone in more on things like that the relationship that they is held up in this films are, are unhealthy. It is an obsessive, dangerous love. You know, it's the one way your boyfriend breaks into your bedroom night and watches you whilst you sleep is not a good thing. The boyfriend is controlling and manipulative and possessive. Also. Is the fact that the heroine herself, she is just a blank slate to project herself onto, but the thing she aspires to is she, she's only 18 years old, but she despises the fact that she's aging. So it's a narcissism of youth and wanting to be eternally youthful. And also, not just rich, but stinkingly rich. The Cullens are stinkingly rich. In the books, it's a lot more obsessive about possessions and money and clothes. And also, you know, the Cullen family are nigh on indestructible because... Edward Cullen can read minds, he can read minds, and his sister can see the future. And they are utterly unbeatable with this combination. They're never really on any, any particular threat. And also, their child is a child of Satan. If you, if you actually analyse what this kid is like. And it's the fact that this is all put forward as a fantasy that people love and accept. That they say this is why this is an unhealthy, dangerous fantasy. The fact that the vampires are rubbish is purely a superficial thing that's most obvious when at your first glance but i'm sure yeah. leo has things to say about this series i'm sure yeah it's a bad source material so you're going to be limited and i can only really talk about the first movie because after that i was done much like you and transformers in but the first movie was pretty bad i mean it's pretty dull it kind of meanders back and forth it doesn't really it's not really particularly made in a a, a way it's quite flat like the idea that there's a lot of gray skies in it is is portrayed in a sort of flat plus uh the director decided uh, it's one of the most hilarious bad lip reading uh things because the cast are allowed to mumble their way through it and when your leads are robert pattinson and uh oh god i can't even bring myself to remember her name kirsten stewart that's right uh when they are the people who are the in the lead you really need a director says no no enunciate instead of which the director went uh, you know, the line would be like, uh, I just don't think I can live without you. And that's how they do it. And the writer went, yeah, great, that's great, we'll use that. And you're like, you're not even moving your lips and you're talking. What is going on? So the ineptitude comes out of the actual problems that exist in the source text. I mean, probably the director, they were like mumbling their way through their lines. And the director was like, sorry, is, is the pay in my bank? I'm not really, because he's like looking at the the script going, well... You know, it's not someone who's, like, passionate. It's not someone who's like, oh, yeah, I think that Twilight is a, a novel that needs to be brought to the screen. If you compare it with uh, the other big uh, franchise in this area, The Hunger Games, the people who make The Hunger Games obviously care about The Hunger Games. They want it to be good. And I don't believe, I, as the Twilight franchise went on, I think they found people who cared a bit more about 
uh, Twilight. I can't tell you whether that's true or not because I haven't seen the other four movies in the franchise. But I do know that the first movie particularly did have this thing. Well, apart from anything else, the, the, the big teen fic kind of movement of young adult uh, adaptations, which is currently coming, I think, towards its tail end. It hadn't happened. So they were making this movie. They were oh, it's not going to make any money. Oh, they're mumbling. Oh, that girl is a whingy pain in the ass because she apparently is. I mean, it, you know, it tells you something when uh, actually she is a person who will put me off watching a movie. I didn't watch that Snow White and the Huntsman thing because despite having Charlize Theron and Thor in it, it had her in it. And I'm like, and it had in the advert the bit where the magic mirror tells Charlize Theron she's less good looking than Kirsten Stewart. And he's like, <laughs> yes. I, I can't buy into that. I'm sorry, no, there are some things in this world that are ridiculous, and that's <laughs> one of them. I don't care how evil she is, she's not less good looking than Kirsten Stewart. It's just no. not going to happen. So, well, the, yeah, you know. The, the bizarre thing is that generally Twilight fans. But the fans who, a lot of them graduated up from Harry Potter. This is the thing, it was like Harry Potter, Twilight, Hunger Games. That seems to be the progression. And it's so... And now Vampire Academy. Yay! Yeah, pretty much. And it's like, Harry Potter is, it's like, it, it is a, an epic treatise about love and against racism. And hey, Harry Potter is an immensely moral framework to it. And like, it's empty, it's hollow, it's Twilight. There's nothing there. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, uh, I think we've, we've kind of, uh, probably run the gamut at this time. And one thing I'm particularly impressed about in this instance is that we've managed to go for this whole discussion that's, uh, taken a big scope of all that is rotten and fetid in cinema. And Justin's completely managed to avoid talking about slipstream. So <laughs> if you want to join in the online discussion about, uh, that particular movie, where might they go to do that, Ian? Well, uh, one place you can go to reminisce about the glorious 80s sci-fi epic from the producers of Star Wars that was Slipscreen would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Please go there and like our page. It's our community hub. We put links to our podcast there. But uh, podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids.podomat.com, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is the most recent podcast can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts, you must go to... Uh, LeoStableford.com, where not only can you find all of our archived podcasts in all their glory, uh, but also if I have something else to write about, I put that there. So, for instance, if you're looking for an in-depth review of the recent, as in last year's, Vampire Academy movie, which successfully manages to cross Tommy Wiseau's The Room, Twilight and Harry Potter into a, a, a cinematic confection of utmost delight, you can see that as soon as I can be bothered to watch that movie. So don't hold your breath or you might end up being a vampire too but if you want to see a picture of a vampire or maybe even a vampire's reflection uh, where might they go to see that justin um well you can see that and examples of all the work i did while i was convalescing after watching slipstream 
on my Demon Art page, under uh, my full name, uh, Justin Wyatt. I've got this Lovecraftian picture now that there's this section on your Deviant Art of pictures. After I saw Slipstream, and when yep. people look at it, they end up in like loony bins and stuff. <laughs> so ah, it's too horrible. So yeah, so there we go. Uh, we hope that you've uh, enjoyed our examination of the bad, the filthy, the vile, and the plain wrong. Uh, and uh, if you haven't, you can come online and whinge at us about how bad it was. Uh, and indeed, uh, form a peanut gallery to this very podcast, in which you play it and, and, and then ridicule us as the uh, dialogue, stilted dialogue and terrible characters make their presence known. I'm off to watch Vampire Academy. How about you chaps? Well, you know, I, I would love if someone to one of our podcasts and tore it apart segment by segment in a blow by blow account how terrible it was on their on their own podcast or, or vidcast or whatever, because quite frankly they probably get more views than we do. And I'm going to watch Supergirl <laughs> With the Super volume Girl down, Slipstream. presumably. Supergirl Slipstream Double Bell. That oh, was- love it sort you out for the afternoon so uh, i think we're all going to go away and allow our brains to calm down uh, for now bye bye farewell goodbye <laughs> <laughs>